It's only been about a week since Jesus ascended into heaven, and the little group of 120 believers in Jerusalem has exploded into 3,000 believers who, after the festival of Pentecost, will scatter back home across the entire Roman Empire, carrying the good news with them. I want to go back and talk a bit about what Peter told the new believers they must do and why they must do it. Because it seems to me that might be a message we should be taking to heart. First, obviously, Peter told them to repent, a word that means to change your purpose in life. That's what the Greek word means. That is definitely a call Jesus made frequently, right? Jesus tried to point people from darkness to light, from death to life, from scarcity of soul to abundance, and from corruption to God. It's not a repentance of, oh, I'm sorry, I was mean to someone, or I'm sorry, I stole something. It's not transactional repentance. It is a literal turnaround in the whole direction of our life. It is a completely new way of seeing ourselves, each other, and God. Next, Peter told the astonished crowd to be baptized in the name of Jesus the Messiah. Now, I think Christians have been brought up to believe we invented baptism. But that could not be further from the truth. Sprinkling or immersion as part of initiation rites or entrance rites for various social and religious groups were widely practiced since antiquity. Even the temple itself has mikveh baths for ritual purification prior to entry into the temple. I've put some references on the screen for you, of places you can look further into water rites in antiquity. In the Egyptian Book of the Dead, for example, there are many spells and rituals that make use of water to convince the gods that one is pure and worthy. And it's not always water involved. The priests of the fertility goddess Sibylle during this time, have to castrate themselves. And as part of their initiation, they also have to go into a pit and stand under a grid as a bull is slaughtered over them so they are completely immersed in the blood. Gross. But you can see why Christianity's words about blood cleansing and blood drinking weren't as bizarre sounding as we might think. And then there are the more normal water purification rituals, hand washing, sprinkling, or bathing, that accompany activities in various Greco-Roman religions. We also know a great deal about the Essenes who lived in the Qumran community near Jericho during Jesus' lifetime. They were Jewish purists who had split off and formed a tight-knit, highly controlled community of their own. Excavations there have found ritual baths, mikveh, used for ceremonial washing. Essene writings, however, are very specific that repentance is required for true purification before any ritual washing. Sound familiar? And these folks had a thriving community well before Jesus showed up in the area. And of course, there's John the Baptist. He, like Jesus, was Jewish and understood the significance to the Jews of ritual washing away of impurity. His father was a priest, and he, like Jesus, had certainly bathed in the mikveh before entering the temple. One of the most interesting things about John the Baptist is that he insisted on baptizing in the Jordan River, which is flowing water what is called living water. And that has significance because in Jewish law, for the most severe issues, a cistern-like mikveh was not considered sufficient. The immersion had to be in living, 
flowing water. John the Baptist was making a strong statement by baptizing people in the living waters of the Jordan. And in John 4.1, there's an interesting passage that says the Pharisees heard that Jesus was baptizing even more disciples than John. And that makes me wonder. To be baptized as someone's disciples, isn't that being baptized in their name? John and Jesus weren't baptizing people into a movement. There was no such thing as Christianity at this point. Disciples followed a person. The disciples are part of that person's, quote, school. So I think that's what being baptized in Jesus' name actually meant to the people, that they were becoming one of Jesus' followers, part of his community, as opposed to, say, being part of the Essenes or the priests of Sibylle. So I personally think that none of this part of the equation Peter is announcing is new. Repentance, forgiveness of sins, and being baptized in the name of Jesus as his disciple has been happening all along, even during Jesus' lifetime. What is new is the explicit acknowledgement that Jesus is the Messiah. The group of believers has a newly added part of their identity. They all now know and believe that Jesus is the Messiah. The next part that is definitely new is Peter's statement that upon repentance and baptism, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. According to Peter, this gift is not reserved for him and the other 11 apostles, nor even the original 120 believers. Peter is saying this to all the people, all 3,000 of these strangers, these new believers will receive the Holy Spirit as a free gift from God. So does that mean that they too would receive the power that Jesus had promised the apostles, the power he told the believers to wait in Jerusalem for? I think that's exactly what Peter means. Remember that Peter has just quoted the end-time prophecy of Joel that says, In the last days, says God, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your teens will see visions, and your seniors will dream dreams. I will pour out my spirit upon my servants, men and women alike, and they will prophesy. Peter, of course, sees this happening before his very eyes. He is experiencing this amazing fullness himself for the first time. And he sees that it is something special, something new, something that is in fulfillment of God's prophecy for all of humankind. And lastly, Peter tells them to be saved which means to be healed completely from the twisted, perverse way of being that they'd inherited. Peter is calling the people to come out, to change course, and that in doing so, they will be healed of generational sin. The love of God that has been twisted in perverse ways will be restored in their soul and they will be filled with the Holy Spirit and healed as they enter into a new sort of family. That's huge. And I've spent some time on it today because this invitation is to us too. We were in view in Joel's prophecy. If you have been given a twisted perverted sense of a distant God, a God of punishment and rejection, then this invitation is for you. If you have been given a powerless God made of paper and someone else's house of cards, simply turn your back on all that and change your purpose. Resolve to be discipled by Jesus the Messiah. 
choose to take his name as your own. In the ritual of baptism, know that Jesus gives his name to you, a name of power and humility, a name of service. As disciples, we all receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, enabling us to heal and be healed, to fill and be filled, and to step free of all the baggage we've been burdened with, especially the burden of sin, a word that means missing the mark. In baptism, in choosing to become a disciple of Jesus, you step into the visceral knowledge that there is no way for you to miss the mark anymore because the goals all belong to God now. Your job is simply to look for what Jesus is doing and do that. Win, lose, draw, it doesn't matter. This is what I was telling folks before class that Joe was out there doing. As she's she's out there doing what she sees Jesus doing, and she's missing class for it. That's what I'm talking about. As long as you are living in humility and serving others, the Holy Spirit will flow powerfully through you, healing you from the inside out as you are healing the world around you. Will the gift of the Holy Spirit be sudden? It might. Will it be accompanied by strange words of joy and prayer and praise bubbling out of you like just happened here? Maybe. But often there is only a sure sense that something foundational has shifted inside you. However it happens for you, know that the Holy Spirit will carefully tend the seed planted within you. God is with you. So if you recall, this whole speech of Peter's is happening because people in the temple just saw him heal one of the lame beggars at the temple gate. The man is running around praising God and people are astounded and are hanging on every word Peter is speaking. John, who came to the temple with Peter, is standing there corroborating Peter, Peter's words. It's a huge commotion, and it doesn't take long for the priests and the Sadducees to show up with the temple guard. The religious leaders thought they dealt with this Jesus movement, but here are his disciples preaching that Jesus has been raised from the dead. They seize Peter and John, but they don't put them on trial because it's too late in the day. So they decide to throw them in jail overnight. But it's too late in a lot of ways. Those 3,000 believers have now become 5,000 believers. The next day, Peter and John are brought before Caiaphas, the high priest, and the rest of the religious leaders for questioning. Who gave you the power to do this? In what name did you act? They ask. And Peter, the lowly fisherman, is given words to say by the Holy Spirit, just as Jesus promised. Peter says, well, if it's because we healed a lame man and you want to know how we did it, then know this. It is by the name of Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, the one you crucified, the one God raised from the dead. It is by his name, this man stands here healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, and he has become the cornerstone. Peter is quoting from Psalm 118 here. The first part of the psalm goes like this. In my distress, I called on God, and he answered me. God is with me. I will not fear what man can do. I shall not die, but will live to proclaim what God can do. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he will not yield me to death. Open the gates of the just to me, and I will enter and give Thanks to the Lord. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Notice how Peter explicitly changes the quote 
to say that Jesus is this cornerstone, the Messiah, the one the psalm is talking about, the one who lives to proclaim what God can do. And that these very religious leaders are the ones who rejected him. Peter says, there is no salvation, meaning healness, healing, wholeness, prosperity, and safety. That's what salvation means in Greek. There is no salvation in anyone else. There is not another name under heaven given to mankind that makes it a requirement, a necessity to be saved, to be made whole and well and safe. Peter is saying that God is different than what they've always thought and that Jesus is the Messiah. He's begging them to open their eyes and see what God is truly doing. This verse about there not being any other name under heaven by which we must be saved has been taken out of context and used in an exclusionary way, a way to arrogantly screen people out of the kingdom of God. But its intent is the exact opposite. I think we get it wrong because, number one, we don't pay attention to the fact that salvation means healing. When you read that word, you need to think in your head, healing, wholeness. And two, because we are misunderstanding what salvation means, scripturally speaking, and in the Greek, that leads us to translate this verse incorrectly. The Greek actually says, this is the only name that makes it a requirement to be healed and made whole and well and safe, to be saved. Belonging to Jesus means we will be healed. And that is exactly the context Peter is speaking in. He's explaining why it is through the name of Jesus that the, this lame man has been healed. It's not magic. It's simply the nature of drawing near to a God who wants to heal us. Peter is reminding them that the prophets foretold there would be no disease or suffering in God's kingdom. He's reminding them that death is conquered in God's kingdom. He's reminding them that swords will be transformed into farm utensils and everyone will be absolutely safe in God's kingdom. He's telling them the kingdom is here and Jesus has brought it. Well, the Sanhedrin, this ruling council of religious leaders, are speechless. They are astounded that these illiterate, unskilled men, the Greek word here actually is the word idiots, have such courage. And they recognize them as being men who followed Jesus. And they can see the lame man standing there healed, and they have no idea what to do. <laughs> so they ask Peter and John to... Uh, Step outside for a minute, please. And they say to each other, what in the world are we going to do with these men? We can't say the miracle didn't happen. Everybody saw it with their own eyes. We've got to warn these men not to speak in this name anymore, or else this is going to spread to all the people. So they call Peter and John back in and order them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus ever again. But Peter and John say, what do you think is right in the eyes of God? To listen to you or to listen to God? There's no way we can keep silent about what we've seen and heard. It is an impasse. So after threatening Peter and John some more, the Sanhedrin has to let them go. The, the crowds are out there praising God for the miracle. There's nothing the Sanhedrin can do about it. For now. Peter and John, of course, run straight back to the other believers and tell them what just happened. Then they all pray and praise God, saying, 
Lord, you made the heaven and the earth, the sea and everything in them. You spoke through our father, King David, saying, it is useless for the nations and the people to plot against God. Why do they even do that? The rulers of the earth counsel together against God and his Messiah. And although they don't quote it here in Acts, that psalm actually goes on to say that God just laughs at these rulers. The believers agree in in prayer. That's exactly right, Lord. Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the rest of the religious people in Jerusalem conspired against your Messiah, Jesus, your servant. They did what you determined ahead of time would accomplish your purpose. So now, Lord, Take note of their threats and help us speak your word with confidence. Stretch out your hand so that healing and miracles and signs will take place through the name of your servant, Jesus. And as they pray, the room begins to shake and they are all filled with the Holy Spirit and begin speaking the word of God with confidence boldly. And as the days go by, the believers continue to be of one mind and of one heart. They share everything they have. The apostles preach with great power about Jesus' resurrection from the dead. The grace of God is upon them all, such that everyone is cared for. Those who own property sell it as needed and bring the money to the apostles. And the money is distributed to whomever has need. One of the men who does this is a guy named Barnabas, which means son of comfort and encouragement. He's a Levite um, from the island of Cyprus. He's going to become important soon. So remember Barnabas, remember him. It's about this time that one of the believers, a man named Ananias, and his wife, Sapphira, sell some property. But together, they agree to keep part of the money for themselves and take the rest to the apostles. But when Ananias brings the money to Peter, Peter says, Ananias, what has happened that Satan has so filled your heart as to cause you to lie to the Holy Spirit? You have set apart some of the proceeds from the land you sold. What made you do such a thing? It's not men you have lied to, but God. And at that, Ananias simply falls down and dies. And that scares everyone to pieces. Nothing like this has ever happened before. A couple of the younger men cover Ananias up, carry him out, and bury him. About three hours later, his wife, Sapphira, comes in. She has not yet heard what has happened. Peter shows her the money. Ananias brought and asks, Is this the total proceeds you and Ananias got for the land you sold? And she says, Yes, it is. And Peter says, Oh, Sapphira, How is it that you and Ananias agreed to put the Holy Spirit to the test? Listen to the footsteps at the door. Those are the men who just buried your husband, and now they will carry you out as well. And with that, Sapphira falls at Peter's feet and dies, and the young men bury her next to her husband. And when news of this reaches the rest of the believers, they are seized with fear. What kind of power is this Holy Spirit? That seems like something worth pondering in our breakout groups. This story of Ananias and Sapphira is a very uncomfortable story. Let's talk about it together. So so this was kind of interesting. What did y'all think? Well, one thing we talked about was that the possible, well, several things, the possibility that the the lying was just as important as holding back money, maybe more important. I don't don't know. And then my 
speculation that you know whether the story was factually accurate or not it it had a purpose it served a purpose for the community but then somebody somebody mentioned that it uh the sort of a opposite purposes one purpose might be to encourage people to to go all in 100% but then somebody else said yeah but it would also encourage people who are wavering not to not to get into this group at all what do you think we didn't come up with any answers just questions <laughs> it was pretty harsh if you think about it that I think it was harsh. What, the death of them? Is that what you mean, Anne? Yeah. You know, like I said in the earlier group, he goes from healing people to, bam, you didn't give me all your money, now you're dead. That's, holy, that's a huge leap. So that's, so, so that's, that's a good point. That's a good point. If we know that God is good, what are we missing? when we're looking at this. Well, that wasn't so nice. <laughs> we were talking some about not only is it money, but it's what you have to offer and how you go about that. We discussed that some and Martha had some really good summaries of some of the things we were talking about, but we do feel safe with this God. Um, with God and the Holy Spirit and the name of, of all names, we are safe. All these things were very strange and somewhat um, bizarre that happened. But like the other group said, getting to the rich believers and they are deceptive and then they fall down dead well wow that one's kind of scary and it makes me wonder and and i made this jokingly but i think about it how come i don't hear this story when we're in church and the church is needing money so much <laughs> Um, more often and then it dawned on me maybe I'm not listening to those preachers maybe there's preachers that do focus on this you know <laughs> but there's more than just your financial giving that you can provide and the Holy Spirit moves in you to do more than just your um financial opportunity as i was sharing with my friends i have a friend who has a tragic life and when you sit and talk with them it takes all your energy mm -hmm. and i'm in a group with a lot of women and she attends this group and sometimes in all times we need to be there for her she really needs us but i was spending time both friday and saturday in the group and after friday when it took everything from me i had to figure out how i could meet their needs and my own because i knew it was coming and i had to think how can i take care of myself also yeah. so that I have enough to give back to others. And I had a strategy and it worked and it preserved me, but it also helped me to meet my friend's needs. But I also know and recognize that that friend is in so much need that it's going to be draining every time. Mm -hmm. And I don't avoid that situation. I have to meet them there. I have to give them what I can. I'm I'm moved to that. I'm drawn to that. That is the purpose of 
part of the group, but not to the detriment of everyone else. Does that make sense? And I know that's the Holy Spirit that's telling me I need to be there. And that you need to have those boundaries where you need to have those boundaries. Yes, that is a new lesson for me. Yeah. 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 And drawing on the resources around you um, to help with those boundaries. So, yeah, that's a good thing. Okay. What other comments or thoughts or things that were uncomfortable or things that you see where, you know, we're trying to find where is God in this? Why did this happen? Where is God? Where, we also what is the talking good? about the believer's needs being filled and that there was enough for everyone. Mm-hmm. And that, Martha, if you can recall what it was you said about how everybody was being persecuted and why the community needed to, to behave the way they would, it would be beautiful. My recollection is that um, because of persecution and because there were widows and orphans uh, in the this group, that um, sharing was vital to their survival. Um, and and I was remind. Uh, I was reminded of the rich young man parable who Jesus says, go sell your, sell everything and then come back. And it's too much. Um, the, the young man just is overwhelmed by the prospect of giving everything that he has away. Um, Jesus doesn't do him any harm in that story, but I'm, it's, there's, there's clearly a connection there. And rather than it being just monetary, I think that the story is about, can you give your all? Can you let go of everything so that you can thrive, so that you can um, appreciate the, the salvation in the way the word is used. The word was chosen for a reason, had a particular meaning, healing and wholeness um, that is available um, and for this group it required that everybody be concerned about others as much or more than they were concerned about themselves so it was a you know it's it's about the it's about more than money because it's more than money was why they held on to some of their money. The, the more we talk about this, the more I think that the lying is crucial to this story. I mean, they were not acting with integrity. Yeah. And, you know, I think that the, 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 the holding back of the money simply laid the foundation for their, um, for their lying. Yes. Yeah. If you link it, you know, if you link what Martha says about the rich young ruler, he walked away, no harm. Right. I mean, there was he didn't know it. There was oh, no harm to him, yeah. but <laughs> you know, but he walked away. And if Anna if Ananias and Sapphira had wanted to keep their money, could they have walked away? Seems so, right? If if they it was in the line where they came back and said, oh yeah, we're, we're in here. Oh, so if, if, if they had, uh, if they had in, in response to the question they were asked, if they had said, well, no, actually we held a little bit back, would they still have fallen over dead? What do y'all think? I don't there think been so. An opportunity for healing, an opportunity for um, reconciliation. Yeah, and for for talking about why they felt insecure in God's provision so that they felt they needed to hold some back. Ooh, Gail. Wow. They felt insecure in God's provision. Woo. 
they could have had an opportunity if that had happened that story would have still been powerful because they could have reconsidered the fact that they were as you said insecure and they could decide well let me go get the rest or you know i'm very insecure i'm not really all in maybe this isn't for me yeah like 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 woody said this is this is not the group for me i, I this is not the god for me that's the point well, not, at the bottom or i'm not ready yet oh, yet yet can go on the end of that sentence yeah. 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 Well, and so to Woody's point about integrity, that's the basis of trust, is it not? And for this group to um, to be able to function despite the terrible examples over the millennia of inside and outside the church, trust is essential to their ability to function and and if yeah i i just think that that it was a super important point Woody. yeah nothing good happens in secret um in 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 these kinds of situations and remember do you remember if you were in the class on the sermon on the mount I don't know if you remember this. There was some big yellow stickies that were the main points of the whole thing. The, the big yellow stickies were, we are, our mission, shine the light in the darkness. And this withholding, this secretiveness, this, Lack of integrity. That is some of the darkness. So they were still living in the darkness. And, and you know, nobody is all good or all bad. So let's, so yes, these this act was an act of darkness. Light shone on it and, you know, and then there was these consequences. So the question is, why would it not have been enough just for the light to have revealed that, they had done this terrible thing and here's the jar where they stuck all their extra money. Then they're shamed. Then, I mean, why did it have to be, they fall down dead? What, why that? Wow. So if it wasn't for the fact that they, the story includes that they bury the man, then the wife comes and they tell her, well, your husband's been buried because he lied to us too. If it wasn't for that, I would be willing to be more comfortable going to, is this a, is this a factual story or is this a tr story about truth? Um, because it is really hard to swallow that a lie gets you a death penalty. That's in in the name of Jesus. That's really hard to swallow. That's exactly what they I thought. Have died. Say it again, Anne. That's exactly what I thought. I, I was thinking, is this maybe just a cover up for them going, yo, you're you're dead to me. And so you're not part of our group anymore. Because I think somebody kicking the button bucket is pretty harsh. Let's talk about that for a second. Let's let's talk about that. Because we perceive death as punishment. Right? That's that's what we're talking about here. Is the death of our body a punishment? It can be in certain situations, but it's also an expiration of our body because we're not infinite in time in this body. There is an end date. There's a beginning and an end date on that. But it can be a punishment that we inflict on others. 
coming from God? Is it a punishment? I don't think it's a punishment from God. I mean, I would never say to somebody who is terminally ill that it's a punishment from God. No, I, I don't think it is a punishment from God. I think it's a transition, but, but I don't still, think it's a punishment. But there, there, was some, there, there must have been something about death that really scared people, even back then. Because, um, you know, it says uh, great fear seized the whole church. Yeah. And that seems um, that seems to be the point, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, if, if if instead of falling down dead, uh, John had simply said, OK, uh, the two of you are out of this out of the club. Uh, and then the, the, the fear would not have been any big deal. Right. They've been in the club about five minutes anyway. So. <laughs> thing about establishing authority of the church back to that whole group but but is it that's a great great insight as well is it establishment of authority of peter um and john and or is it something else think back so would you classify this fall down dead as a sign or a wonder is it normal no. No. no, it's ab extra normal, right? It's a sign and a wonder. What is always the purpose of the signs and wonders? Losing control. No, I don't know. I think the signs and wonders so far have always been billboards from God. They yep. reveal something. They are billboards about God being present. They are billboards. This is all those healings and miracles and things, all the things. If we think back, they are are, are billboards saying, sending a message. They are saying, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. They are saying, this is my message. Listen to it. Is the death of Ananias and Sapphira a billboard to the brand new church community? And I what, think so. What is it well, saying? Well, yeah, well, what's it, the billboard saying? It does, you know, in the bullet point here, and I got to admit, I didn't read the passages directly. Um, it says, when they kept the money for themselves, the Holy Spirit re re reveals their deception to Peter. It does not then say, and the Holy Spirit strikes them dead. It just says, and they fall down dead. The Holy Spirit does the revealing of the deception. And then it's on them that they fall down dead it's not they were stricken does that make sense like just something like uh in the garden of eden when the sin is revealed and they are embarrassed mm -hmm. it's yeah. their reaction to having been exposed mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and i wonder um gail if you had any reason to look at the they took them out and buried them whether or not there are any um literary devices in that or the choice of words reveal anything other than literal burial i did not think to look for a literary device there because it it seemed like a um uh you know a simple story but sometimes that that you know that obviously could be an issue let me look it up it's in acts 5 6 Hang it says on. to Anne's point that you're dead to me um <laughs> some cultures shun people out and yeah. use death language around it do they not? that's right that's right the the word is ethapsan and it is the common word for bury it doesn't have like okay, okay. other meanings So um, part of the question here to me 
is do we think Ananias and Sapphira continue to live? I'm sorry, say that again. Do we think Ananias and Sapphira continue to live after death like we think other people continue to live after death? Somehow we take this story as their lives stop and they're and they're swallowed up by death. I, I'm not sure that's what this story says. I'm not sure so, that's what the story is about. You know, I'm I'm sticking on this thing with the Holy Spirit. They must have been moved to become a part of the early commitment of the church, you know, the forming. They must have been moved so that. It seems to me that the spirit was in them and they denied that. Yeah, I think that the, the spirit was certainly, there was certainly in them because they would have been baptized believers, right? To yeah. be contributing to the church in this way, to be selling property. They're all, all, they're all in, but there is at some level an insecurity in, in God, in their trust trusting God for their provision and in trusting God's way for this to happen. Martha, I saw you talking, but I couldn't hear you. Absolutely. I agree that, that there must've been something, you know, moving them to, or to, there was an insecurity. They were new believers. Were they well supported is a good question to ask. Mm -hmm. And in regard to this death penalty for their deception, um, I, um, oh shoot, Brian Stevenson makes the point that a person is not the worst thing they have ever done. And I think that we have to give these people that very same grace, which makes this still complicated and hard to understand. Mm -hmm. But um, you're, you are not the worst thing you have ever done. That is one of the things you did. Yes, and let, and there's an and it reminded me a lot of the story in the Hebrew Bible, where the men challenged authority. Remember uh, Moses' authority and said, "Who are you to be, you know, lording it over us?" And and the Lord, you know, kind of burned them to a crisp. There was nothing left. But then the Lord said, "Go out and pick up the things that the, that they had brought to this confrontation and." place them, hammer them to the altar because they are holy. They were, they were made holy by their deaths. So I, I see a link to that story as well. Um, you said a minute ago, you used the phrase that they were, I guess, Ananias and Sapphira were all in. Did you, did you use that phrase? Uh -huh. I would, I would question that because I mean, not only did they, keep some money behind not only did they lie about it but um it doesn't say that 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 they sold all their property it just says they sold a piece of property and apparently they were very wealthy so a piece of property with them may have they may have owned many many pieces of property mm -hmm, mm -hmm. well i wonder i could see this being a sermon on um not having enough faith. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's a thing. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's a consequence of their behavior. You know, maybe they had a heart attack. Maybe something physical just happened in that moment as their reaction to their deception. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's something that I don't see the Holy Spirit striking them dead I, I don't see that and i don't see them not having enough faith i just see them making a poor choice and a consequence to that poor choice mm -hmm. now maybe i have rose-colored glasses on but that's the way i see it that's okay there is there is not going to be a perfect right answer that everybody's going to agree on we're talking about a difficult story that people never talk about <laughs> so so I can I, see this being twisted into something people talk about. It could, and I, but I want to bring up another way to look at this story, and that is 
this is what I think is really going on. I think it is a sign and wonder. I think it is a billboard to the community. I think it is a little bit about withholding, you know, I think it is a lot about not trusting God. But I think the big message about the falling down dead is the message is not to Ananias and Sapphira. They live on. Okay, I don't think this is in any way punishment to Ananias and Sapphira. I think this is a message to the fledgling church that they do not need to police or punish or do anything to believers in their community, that the Holy Spirit will take care of it without their church boards and their kicking people out and the, all the things. Oh, wow. No wonder it's not talked about then. Oh, no. I this think is the Holy right. Spirit taking care of the Holy Spirit's community. Yeah. Taking care of the discipline without our help. We stay in our lanes. We pray for each other. We love each other. Peter didn't condemn them. Peter just asked them what they did. Peter saw the Holy Spirit can take care of the community, the, the body of believers all by itself without us making up these rules and setting up these hierarchies and having excommunications and things. So That's my two cents. Passing judgment on one another in the church community. Yep. We can notice. We can try to, you know, come alongside. And there are times where we have to set boundaries when somebody's hurting someone, you know. But, but beyond that, this is not our job. If we believe that God is God and that God's got this. Anyway, food for thought. Great thought. So I'm going to let you go and we will. And, and just a reminder, we're going to have class next week. And then because of things that are happening in my personal life, we are going to take Thanksgiving to the end of the year off. And I will. So we have one more class and it's a good breaking point because next class, the class, Paul is slightly introduced. And then the class after that would be like, we pick up with Paul's story. So I'd rather do that all in an, in an arc. So um, it, it's a good breaking point. I'm afraid I have a, a doctor appointment that's going to conflict with next week. So happy, Hello. Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas, Happy Thanksgiving. And I'll, and and uh, happy new year. We'll see you in, <laughs> see you in January. Bye-bye. Next year. Yeah. Take care. Bye. Thank you.